Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. We want to talk today about climate change, something we talk about a fair amount here on the program. Uh, But we want to talk about what is going on with the response to climate change right now. We had this extraordinary testimony unfold uh, this week in Washington by four former EPA administrators who say that the agency is now just really unable to do its job because of the way that the Trump administration has handled things. We're going to talk with someone about that. We also want to talk about business and companies and how they are responding to climate change and the new challenges that we have because the weather is just so different than it used to be. Uh, And we're also going to talk with Jim Nash, the Oakland County Water Resources Commissioner, about Oakland County's effort to improve infrastructure and respond to climate change and increased precipitation. And speaking of increased precipitation, I don't know if you were awakened last night by the unbelievable storm that we have, but I was. Uh, And that's really unusual in and of itself. The rain doesn't normally wake me from my sleep, but it did last night. And uh, it was a little frightening, to be honest, how much water. It sounded like someone was just pouring water on the roof of my house. Of course, all hour, we want to hear from you as well. Uh, What do you think about the role of the EPA? What do you think about the way that business should be responding to climate change? And if you live in Oakland County, tell me what is going on there with with infrastructure and its response to climate change. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. 1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will work you into the conversation. So let's start with these four former EPA administrators who testified before Congress and said that they are afraid for the public's health as the Trump administration continues to deregulate longtime environmental policies and roll back the agency's research on climate change. The staff levels at the EPA are the lowest they have been since the 1980s, which was an era when we saw a significant uptick in regulations that were passed around environmental protection. Uh, We're regularly seeing the Trump administration deny the idea of climate change and deny that humanity is playing a role in the rapid deterioration of our planet. And all that leaves us with some big questions about where we go from here and what the future will look like if things continue down this path. That's where we want to begin the conversation. And I want to welcome Betsy Sutherland, a former director of the EPA Office of Science and Technology in the Office of Water. Uh, She worked in both the water and Superfund programs during her 33 years at the EPA, where she oversaw development of the agency's drinking water health advisories for PFAS before retiring in August of 2017. Betsy Sutherland, welcome to Detroit Today. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, So let's start with you describing the current state of the EPA under the Trump administration. What is happening? Well, it's a stunning situation because really the Trump administration has mounted attacks on EPA's past, present, and future. There's, There's no aspect of the agency that they haven't worked to either repeal or reconstruct. And I can I can give you examples of each of those past, present, and future actions if you're interested. Sure. Yeah. No. I would I would love to hear that. So for the past, 
they're repealing public health protections that have been in place for years. And they're doing this not at the request of industry sectors as a whole, but at the request of one or two companies that happen to be uh, major contributors to the Trump campaign. So we're losing years and years of public health protection at the request of just really one or two companies who are major political donors. For the present, they are refusing to enforce a lot of the existing regulations that they haven't had time yet to repeal. And we know that that enforcement is at a historically low level. Uh, There's congressional hearings on that uh, that haven't had to take place for 20 or more years because EPA has previously been so careful to enforce existing regulations. And then for the future, what has happened, they have found that when litigated on repealing all these past public health protections, they are oftentimes losing in court. You know, once there's a a judge who decides the uh, reasonableness of these repeals, And so what they have turned to do now is to attack future rulemaking at EPA by proposing a number of rules that are going to prohibit EPA from using the best available science and to prohibit them from doing the appropriate cost-benefit analysis of those scientifically-based rules. Hmm. So really, I I can give you examples of each of these. Yeah, but it is a full past, present, and future attack. And and from your perspective, is that attack ideological, uh, in the sense that it is about doubting the seriousness of climate change, or is it about uh, anti-government? In other words, uh, if you look across the federal government right now, Donald Trump hasn't done a whole lot to to prop up almost any. Uh, part of of the federal government. Many agencies are not seeing positions filled, are seeing policies sort of uh, turned on their head. Uh, Do you think this is a specific attack on the idea of climate change? No, I actually think it's actually more corrupt than that. I actually think that everything they're doing, and and again, my expertise is with EPA, not Mm -hmm. other agencies, Mm -hmm. but I can tell you that everything they're doing at EPA is at the request of one or two companies who are major political donors to the Trump campaign. Mm. Um, And again, uh, a number of these repeals that they're doing have opposition from other companies in the same industry sector. Uh, I can give you just three examples uh, right off the top of my head. Um, they are weakening the national methane standards. Uh, and Shell, BP, and Exxon have all said, don't do this. You know, we think that methane is a greenhouse gas. It's a toxic gas that we want to have control with national standards. And yet EPA is going ahead to remove those standards. In the case of the toxics in the air, both mercury and all air toxics That rule was passed in 2012, and every electric utility plant in the country is already in compliance with those toxic standards. Yet, EPA is planning to possibly repeal those standards, and the entire electric utility sector is opposed to that. They actually think that coal-fired power plants should control neurotoxins like mercury, 
from being released into the air. Hmm. And then finally, I think one that's been really well publicized recently is that Honda, Ford, and a number of other automakers are really opposed to EPA's plan to freeze car and light truck gas mileage at the 2020 level instead of increasing them uh, as we go forward in the future to be even higher gas mileage standards. And furthermore, ending California's authority to set its own standards. So those are three just examples, you know, again, right off the top of my head of where individual political donor companies have demanded that EPA do this. And the whole rest of the industry sector is actually opposed. Hmm. Uh, Can you talk about how public health is being affected by these rollbacks and decreased enforcement of public health protections? I mean, is this something that we're already starting to see consequences from? Yes, uh, and it, it was it was particularly sad because in 2018, even the Trump Office of Management and Budget had to report to Congress on the annual benefits of EPA regulations. Uh, and actually, they have to do it regularly for, for regulations done by all the federal government. And what that report said, this is, again, a 2018 report is that over the past 10 years, the benefits of EPA regulations have far exceeded the cost. We have benefits that the few that we can even monetize are up to $700 billion in benefits, where the cost required to comply with those regulations is down around $65 billion. Hmm. So it's well known that the public health protections are well worth the cost of pollution controls. And when the Trump administration delays the implementation of existing rules and doesn't enforce them, and then further repeals them and replaces them with either weaker standards or no standards at all, I can tell you that every one of us is breathing dirtier air and experiencing dirtier water right now and will for the foreseeable future until litigation can reverse these repeals. Wow. Wow. That is a very dark uh, prognosis. Uh, I'm talking with Betsy Sutherland. She's a former director of the EPA Office of Science and Technology in the Office of Water. Uh, We're talking about the role that the EPA is playing right now uh, under the administration of Donald Trump. Uh, The administration has changed a lot of policy and the agency backed off a lot of existing regulations. Uh, we're talking about what that looks like, uh, both in terms of the administration of the EPA and the consequences for public health. Of course, we want to hear from you. We're talking all hour about climate change and the way it's changing our lives. Uh, what do you think of the role the EPA should be? Uh, who's responsible for protecting the environment? And do you think we can protect the environment if we're not propping up the EPA, if we have a president who is not uh, making a priority out of the kinds of regulations and enforcement that have marked the agency for several decades. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll work you into the conversation. Let's go to Jim in Gross Point Woods. Jim, what's on your mind? Uh, Yes, Stephen. Uh, Thank you for covering this issue today. Uh, I just wanted to let you know 
that we have uh, just got back from uh, a conference in Washington, D.C. with the Citizens Climate Lobby. We had 1,200 people on the Hill on Tuesday uh, with over 500 meetings with members of Congress, both Senate and the House, and uh, included 70 folks from Michigan. We actually took four students from the University of Michigan and uh, uh, and uh, uh, Oakland University uh, to D.C. for these meetings. Oh. And what was the reception, uh, in your estimation, Jim, of, of members of Congress and, uh, and other folks about what's going on with the EPA? Are they as concerned about this uh, as, as you are? Well, the, uh, the meetings that, that I was in was uh, mostly with Democrats. I, I met with uh, uh, my uh, uh, you know, officers. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to say that uh, this, this bill, which is called the Energy Innovation and Carbon uh, Dividend Act, it uh, actually was introduced in January, has already uh, 45 co-sponsors, including uh, Congressman Andy Levin, who's also a co-sponsor on the Green New Deal. Sure. And uh, Representative Kilby signed on to this. And what this bill does is actually uh, mandates EPA uh, in law to uh, uh, reduce carbon. So it's not just a regulation that is put forward by the president that can be changed when a new president comes in. It is a law that mandates that that EPA uh, reduce, reduce the emissions. So that's that's the approach of this particular bill. Yeah, yeah, Jim. I really appreciate the call uh, and all the all the info there. Um, Betsy Sutherland, uh, talk about the role that Congress can and should be playing uh, in this era where the presidency is is uh, sort of approaching the EPA in a really different way. Is is Congress uh, able to push back uh, the way that that Jim is suggesting it might? Well, of course, that just changed in 2018 (laughs) with the midterm (laughs) election. Right. In the first two years of the Trump administration, there was no congressional oversight whatsoever. And I can tell you that um, all the scandals that Scott Pruitt was involved in before he was, uh, you know, forced to resign, uh, even that did not get the attention of Republican leaders. senators and representatives. Mm. It had to be Democrats forcing even that really scandal-ridden administration from getting any oversight at all. And that meant that, uh, again, no focus was on the substantive uh, repeal of all these public health protections whatsoever until the change uh, in the House. And we see now, uh, just in the first few months of the new Congress, Uh, The House, with a Democratic majority, has had more hearings on EPA than it occurred (laughs) in the previous two years. Uh, A number of hearings on climate change, a number one, a number of them on drinking water quality, and also just looking at the substantive uh, human health impacts of all these regulations being repealed. So I would say in the House now, oversight is very, very effective. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Jim in Warren. Jim, welcome to the show. Good morning, and thanks for taking my call. Sure. Uh, I run a small trucking company in Warren, about 90 trucks. 
and our engines have been heavily regulated over the past decade or so. And EPA uh, was concerned with the emissions that they overregulated with the previous administration. Uh, to be specific, they put in technologies or required technologies that were so stringent and not proven to be reliable, efficient, or cost-effective that they had to take a step back now to look at just those issues. Hmm. Uh, their issues in the past, starting with the 2008 truck engines, and I'm talking about the 80,000-pound trucks that, uh, that move 70% of commerce that we consume in the United States. Uh, it caused the largest, most efficient truck engine manufacturer to say that this isn't worth our time. We're not going to make truck engines anymore. Uh, there were class action lawsuits and two manufacturers because, in my opinion, the EPA pushed technologies too far. So now EPA is calling to industry saying, what did we do wrong? How can we improve it? Where do we need to be for the next generation of regulations, which should take, take place in 2027? So I see a significant benefit with the Trump administration through the EPA mm. and how it's going to improve uh, emissions through heavy trucks. Wow. Now, let me yeah, go, keep going, Jim. To the, to the last administration, is that because this technology was, was so new and so ineffective, uh, they rebirthed another of an old practice of taking an old engine and put that old engine in a brand new truck and body. It's called a glider kit. So while the, the standard was to improve and reduce emissions, what they did is they caused a whole new cottage industry to be rebirthed hmm. and didn't make even what the, the, the 2008 or 2007 standards were. Beyond hmm. that, the most latest, greatest safety-based technologies – collision mitigation, you know, uh, automatic emergency braking, electronic stability control, everything that's available in passenger cars now are available in trucks, but they can only be deployed in OEM uh, engines, which are the later model engines, not the earlier stuff. Right, right. So EPA's further uh, uh, previous rules made that technology unaffordable so that hmm. those engines could not be put into new trucks, and therefore we, we – We've really missed probably a generation of trucks for the best safety technology wow. that are, are in place today. Jim, so I, Jim I really appreciate uh, the call and, and the information. And Betsy Sutherland, I'll tell you, this is this is what you get when you come on a radio show in Detroit, right? Uh, we, we build a lot of things here. <laughs> we build a lot of things that have an effect on on the environment and you know our livelihoods depend, uh, all of our livelihoods here in Southeast Michigan especially, depend on the health of, uh, of those industries. I think the points that Jim is raising really get to the heart of the tension that sometimes uh, crops up between environmental protection and industry. And I think those were some good examples of maybe ways that uh, the EPA has been out of sync uh, with, with, uh, with, with those industries and, and sometimes. And as Jim's saying, he feels like the Trump administration is approaching this in a more constructive way. How, how do you answer that? Well, uh, let me just clarify. First of all, the rule that they're about to go final on this summer affects light trucks and cars, not the heavy trucks that, um, that your caller about. was just talking about. Okay. And in that case, all the automakers are on record as saying that EPA has gone too far under the Trump administration by freezing that gas mileage at 2020 levels. And furthermore, they're deeply concerned 
uh, that apparently when they go final on this rule this summer, they're going to uh, remove California's authority to set its own standards. Mm -hmm. And it's had the ability to do that uh, since 1967. So um, uh, it, it, it does not address the heavy truck issue that your caller was talking about. But uh, it is true that there was a big scandal in the Pruitt administration early on at EPA about these glider trucks where mm -hmm. you were using old engines yes. in new truck bodies. And uh, EPA has not gone forward with those admission standards because of the scandal around uh, the study that was done to support those new admission standards. So mm. even the Trump administration backed off of that one. So what about his criticism of the former administration and the way they handled these issues, uh, maybe with good intention, uh, but but with results that didn't achieve uh, what what they were what they were hoping to? Well, I absolutely EPA should always be open to talking to all parties, and that means in-depth discussions with industry and the people most affected by the regulations, as well as with environmental groups and the general public. And I know that the previous administration, and actually all previous administrations I worked for, uh, the Bush administration, the Obama administration, Clinton, all of them really made major efforts to do that. Uh, and so I, I, I absolutely, the agency can always do better at that. I think my objection to the current Trump administration is they speak only to the donor companies for their political campaign, not to the industry as a whole and not to the environmental groups or the general public or the public health scientists in the country, mm. solely to political donors. And that's a huge departure from every past administration, Republican or Democratic. Okay, Betsy Sutherland, former director of the EPA Office of Science and Technology in the Office of Water. Thanks very much for being here with us on Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. Up next, we're going to take a look at how businesses are seeing climate change affect their financial bottom lines. Also, tune in tomorrow and Monday. We're going to look ahead to the Detroit Jazz Festival with the president of the organization, Chris Collins. And we're going to talk about Juneteenth, what it is and where to celebrate it in the city of Detroit. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking this hour about climate change and the way it's affecting our lives. We're talking about the EPA, the federal agency that's tasked with protecting air and water and land here in the in the country and what role it's playing under the Trump administration. Uh, now we want to sort of turn uh, to another related topic, which is how business deals with uh, climate change. Um, uh, businesses, of course, are affected by climate change just like the rest of us. Um, and it becomes a way that uh, it affects the way that we all kind of see the future. 
um, this, of course, does not uh, exempt businesses uh, from from that, that kind of change. And in the very near future, within the next five years, in fact, tech companies, big banks, and others are really going to feel the effects of climate change in ways that they need to start accounting for and disclosing to their shareholders and regulators. Global warming is going to disrupt supply chains, natural resources are going to dry up, and stricter climate regulations will impact the value of coal, oil, and gas. According to early estimates, ultimately trillions of dollars could be at stake. So here to talk about what companies are currently doing and can do about the plausible financial risks from global warming is our next guest, Dan Reich. He is the former assistant regional counsel for EPA Region 9, and prior to that, he served as a trial attorney with the U.S. Department of Justice. After 33 years of federal service, he retired in April of 2017. Dan Reich, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you very much. Yeah. So let's first, let's talk about this economic impact that we're seeing that's related to climate change. Obviously, weather-related events are wreaking havoc on properties and lives all over the country and world. Of course, right here in southeast Michigan, we had one of the biggest rainstorms of the year last night. I think uh, we'll be spending today and the, the rest of the week tallying up the damage uh, that that did. Uh, but talk about it from a business perspective. Sure. I mean, I think the fact is that um, these types of weather events, whether it's Hurricane Harvey that um, drops 60 inches of rainfall in six days and kills 68 people, these will affect businesses. And the Paradise, California uh, fires, which incinerated some people in their car, 86 dead, 13,000 homes, it was unheard of in California to have that kind of fire. This will affect businesses. So the question you're asking is, okay, what are the implications for the companies? Um, first of all, you can see some, just some examples. PG&E is filing Chapter 11 bankruptcy. That's out in California. Mm-hmm. And basically because of the, the fires, they, they're, getting, they're being held liable for the wires that might fall down and start the fires, and that is going to have a very significant aspect uh, impact on their bottom line, and will of course uh, leave consumers without a um, utility or some form of it. Yeah. So that's one example. Um, a second example, uh, you know, even closer to you folks, is Archer Daniels Midland just talked about that the flooding will cost between 50 and $60 million in the first quarter of 2019. Mm. Um, so uh, when you have the kinds of rains that you just saw, and by the way, I'll, I, I noticed that the NRDC just came out with a report about climate change in Michigan, if your readers or if your viewers are interested, mm-hmm. that talk about the, the harm and, and death from climate change, et cetera. But if you have that kind of situation, um, it's, it's, it's going to have a lot of effect. And finally, you were starting, if, if I can just go do one more, is, sure. is, is really the uh, automobile fuel efficiency standards. Mm-hmm. Um, in the end, I think Betsy covered it a bit, but you know, you're talking about going from 54.5 miles per gallon to 37 miles per gallon under the Trump proposal. So that's a lot of extra emissions from these light-duty vehicles, and 
and that's about 37 million more cars on the road by 2040. That those are the projections when you look at the the um, the, the impact of, of what's going on, and that just means more greenhouse gases, which will mean mean a little bit more global warming, and that's going to be more of the weather-related impact. Now, you do have the um, auto manufacturers, and they're kind of caught in a dilemma. They're in a business dilemma that I think Betsy sort of alluded to. A lot of the companies are saying, wait a minute, President Trump, don't go this far. And that's what's happened here. And I think you, Jim, alluded to it in in the beginning. Mm. The auto manufacturers first said, and if I can, I was going to just kind of play out that example a little bit more so, if that's all right. Yeah, Yeah, no, Stephen. Stephen, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. That's okay. Go ahead. My bad. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Um, Well, anyway... um, what happened with the auto manufacturers is, of course, trade associations, and I've worked in this area, trade associations generally say regulations are, not, are too much, they're too stringent, and they're bad for business. Well, what happened was that the auto manufacturers, of course, would say something like that. But then you had the oil refiners, uh, Marathon and others, who were saying, look, just these, uh, these are terrible standards. And, of course, Trump followed the, auto menu, uh, the oil refiners. Well, now you have a situation, a very difficult one, because the auto manufacturers have realized that they pushed California, who have much more stringent standards, into a corner, and they're, they're going to be in litigation. Hmm. And that's a business dilemma for them. And then recently they, they realized, and they, they, industry tends to be quiet about these things. Yeah. Yeah. And they just don't want to raise make ways. But recently, the auto manufacturers said, hey, wait a minute, we're going to lose a share of market here that's substantial. We're probably going to be left behind because other countries are going to be pushing for more fuel-efficient engines, and we're going to be left behind in the business world. President Trump, please reconsider this. Mm. And so finally, they took a stand. And I think the only I think what has to happen in the future is that they need to reconsider that kind of position and not only take a stand, but say, look, here's what we can do now, because these these standards were all negotiated. They can do a lot of the technology. So they need to step up rather than just um, be passive about it if if the uh, industry is going to have a role in this administration. And that goes for probably some of the other areas also. So, Sorry, so I, I wonder if you could talk just a little about the the, 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 the tension, I guess, that exists for businesses between uh, the idea of the cost of trying to do things differently now uh, uh, versus uh, the long-term cost of not adapting. Uh, I, I would imagine that this is one of the things that, that, that is sort of unfolding in boardrooms uh, across the country is this idea that um, it's going to cost money to, to do things differently today. Uh, but in the long run, of course, uh, you may even make more money um, uh, because you're you're better you're better equipped for for the changes that are that are coming. Can you can you talk about how how companies are uh, approaching that? Well, I, I think up to now they've approached it 
with trade associations saying, don't do it. And I think you had, uh, you know, you see that again and again. But I think what companies really need to do is to start rethinking uh, their role in this and maybe start to reach out to federal and local regulators and say, look, here's how we can do these things. Let's try to work together because it's no longer just in the interest of the EPA. It's in the interest of manufacturers like Archer Daniels Midland and others when their facilities get flooded Mm -hmm. or um, their suppliers can't produce, you know, their their materials because they have the effects of the weather. So they really need to kind of come together with not only the federal regulators, but there are a lot of state and locals that have really good ideas on some of this and try to develop some of the best practices that that can be available to industry and that can work together with uh, with with the regulators to make this work more effectively. Hmm. Uh, and yeah, go ahead. One last point to the last caller that uh, I think his name was Jim. Mm-hmm. Uh, about the diesel particulate filters, sometimes there are, uh, excuse me, he, didn't, he talked about uh, the technology for trucks. For trucks, yes. Yeah, and, and, and sometimes I agree that it's, an EPA regulates new trucks, but there are technologies out there for trucks already on the road, and they're called diesel particulate filters, and they're active and passive. I can get to all the technical, but that isn't as important. As California has these co- trucks, and and is starting to do require you know is is doing things to make people do that now that happens in California, other jurisdictions are going to have to look and say, well maybe we need to kind of improve the health by not having diesel in our community and others to try to do that and these are cost effective, I, I think there's been a lot of debate traditionally but if you look out in California just for your for your um, viewers to yeah. think about. Yeah. Uh, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number on the phones. Uh, let's go to Charlie in Royal Oak. Charlie, welcome to yeah, Detroit hi, today. How are you? Hey, go ahead. Good morning. Uh, question for your guest. Um, even though the Trump administration wants to roll back the EPA standards push put in place, what's to stop the auto industry from continuing to build more fuel-efficient cars if that's what they feel they should be doing? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question, Charlie. Uh, Dan Rice, talk about the importance of uh, these fuel standards and why, if the companies believe that uh, that more fuel-efficient cars are necessary for their business, they couldn't just go ahead and do it anyway. I, I didn't quite hear all of the question, but if I understand, go ahead and, and, and maybe just repeat it briefly. Yeah. So, I mean, he's asking about the fuel efficiency standards and and whether if the auto companies believe they ought to be making fuel efficient cars anyway, if if as a business of imperative they've kind of embraced that, why do the why do the fuel standards matter? In other words. Uh, what's preventing them from going ahead and doing it, uh, even though the, the, the standard is not uh, requiring it? Well, I think the problem is if you... Um, it creates a tension for them. I think that they do perhaps need to do it, but there are, other com- there are many companies that say, hey, wait a minute, I'd rather produce these more... Ga- uh, they use a lot more gasoline and I think I can get a better market, and I can take advantage of the fact that these other folks may have to spend a little more in order to uh, 
improve fuel efficiency. And so what you do is you don't have a level playing field. Now, I do think that, that um, the answer to that, to continue a level playing field, is for the regulations to be in effect, so everybody has to play by the same rules. You don't want to have different sets of rules. But granted, I think the, the point is, can companies just ignore what the Trump administration is doing and um, build these other cars anyway? Yes, but I think that uh, you know there, there are complications from their, in their boardroom as to how they proceed with that. Hmm. Uh, again, thanks very much uh, for the call and the question, Charlie. Let's go to uh, Daryl in Detroit. Daryl, what's on your mind? Yeah, I just thought I'd add some context that we're in such a uh, divided political climate right now. It might be hard for people to understand this or, or remember it, but the EPA was actually uh, started uh, by Ronald Reagan and uh, the Republican side of the aisle and a handful of fossil fuel producing corporate heads. The purpose wasn't to thwart corporate America or to stop progress forward, but instead it was to create a, a, an avenue or, or rather a venue for people from the community and from uh, um, uh, environmental protection groups, et cetera, to come into the fold whenever corporate America was going to do something like uh, put in a series of oil wells or put a, uh, a fuel line under a body of water or something. It was a place for them to get their feedback from concerned parties before they spent a bunch of money building something that they found out America didn't want or like. Mm. So they thought, well, how can we avoid wasting all this money and wasting all this time and energy and manpower if, if nobody's going to cherish it and applaud us afterwards? We don't want to blow our cash either. So the EPA was started by Ronald Reagan and conservatives who wanted to be fiscally responsible and who wanted to respond to the, to the community at large and give them what they actually wanted uh, uh, so uh, that there would be no complaints afterwards. Yeah, it's actually, I mean, it's actually, you're, you're, your your point is is very important, uh, but it's actually Richard Nixon uh, who starts the EPA in 1970, not Ronald Reagan. But same same okay. same difference, right? Uh, a, a conservative Republican president who who starts the 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 nation's you know most powerful uh, environmental oversight uh, agency. Um, uh, I, yeah, go ahead, Dan. You know, no, Stephen, I I think Daryl's point is an excellent one. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you, if you don't mind, I was going to just tell you my personal experience because I've worked for the EPA a long time. And I started what was called the Merit Partnership for Pollution Prevention out on the West Coast. We did what Daryl was talking about. We got the National Natural Resources Defense Council. We got community groups. We had um, Dow Chemical. We had all ARCO. We had all these companies and folks and local regulators. What are the best ways? What are the best ways to do pollution prevention projects? And it works if you can come together. We did it for metal platers. These were the dirtiest, most difficult companies to regulate because they were being regulated in their small businesses. We came together. We worked and funded new methods for them to reduce the chemicals that they were using and make it cost-effective for them. And that's the kind of partnership that when I was making my earlier comments, and Daryl maybe helped me focus on it, (laughs) were the kinds of things that now regulators like the auto industry and others that Betsy was talking about need to come together and need to bring to the table because those folks have a lot of knowledge. When I say those folks, I'm not only talking about 
the companies, because they're there. I'm talking about the public interest groups, the community. Mm -hmm. They can work together, and this does not always have to be antagonistic. So that's just my comment. Yeah. Thank you for your comment, Daryl. No, Dan Reich, I really appreciate uh, what you're saying there, and I really appreciate your being here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks for the time. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Up next, we're going to take a look at local efforts to improve infrastructure in Oakland County in response to the climate change that we're experiencing and the damage that it is doing. Stay with us on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. The United States just witnessed its wettest 12 months in 125 years. And, of course, the floods just keep on coming. That being said, this trend has also been the case in Michigan, and we've seen it play out with a lot of flooding in our homes, on our roadways, and a variety of other places where we don't want it. Of course, we all woke up this morning to flooding from intense, intense rains overnight like uh, we have not seen uh, before. Oakland County's Water Resources Commissioner Jim Nash is trying to get out in front of all of this by taking a proactive approach in improving the county's infrastructure as the climate changes and we continue to see more extreme weather patterns. Jim Nash, Oakland County Water Resources Commissioner, joins me now to talk about what he's up to. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. So your office recently secured a grant from SEMCOG to facilitate a multi-community effort to evaluate the barriers that current local ordinances had in the promotion of green infrastructure and the expansion of green infrastructure. Talk about that. Well, green infrastructure is the alternative to the big old gray infrastructure uh, systems where you had giant pipes underground, big pumps, uh, storage tanks, things like that. What it's trying to do is is um, imitate what nature absorbs rain in in, in uh, forests and in, in grasslands and things like that, rather than built up areas. So we're trying to encourage local governments to do that, to to develop their ordinances better, to uh, to encourage that in redevelopment, in new development, any kind of development, um, so we can limit the amount of rain that gets into our systems from outside first. If we can do that. That, that saves costs and that lowers the, the risk of flooding in the larger events. Um, uh, when we talk about infrastructure uh, around here, we, we tend to think about roads because that's the, that's the conversation that dominates uh, the, the narrative in Lansing. And it's the thing that we see and experience every day. Uh, but when you talk about infrastructure, you are talking about something much broader. And it's, I think it's a harder sell to people to even think about it because they don't see it and they don't really experience it until it fails. That's right. Until you've seen it. Once you've seen a failure, you'll never forget it. Uh, sewer <laughs> backups. Uh, once that, something's happened in your home, when sewage comes in your home, you're never going to forget that. You're going to do what you can to protect that. Um, same with stormwater, all those things. Um, and in mind of fact, the, the underground infrastructure, which is what you're talking about, is, is underneath those roads often. So when, when they work on a road, we try to make sure that we're doing that infrastructure stuff underneath it so we don't have to 
tear the road up again in a, in a few years, uh, things like that. So the more we can protect our infrastructure and, and, and coordinate it with the surface and below surface infrastructure, the better off we are. Um, we're, we're doing that on a statewide basis now also. And, and do you feel like there are obstacles to selling people on the idea of this, uh, the idea that it may cost us some money, uh, some more money? <laughs> No, it's true. It's it's you know that the the, the resistance to spending money is, is always strong. Uh, but we we show evidence of what happened. Uh, remember, five years ago we had a storm in in August of uh, 2014 in yes. this area that had a huge impact. Uh, thousands of homes were flooded. Um, so this is a it was a 330 year storm, the kind of storm that will become more common as climate change affects uh, the Great Lakes region because uh, we're a cold sink in in the lake water and then the. The heavily laden water, uh, air, air uh, with water coming across the, uh, the Midwest hits us, and then it's released here. So that's what we're seeing now is, is larger events that are, that are very concentrated. Yeah. Um, talk about the work to create a regional standard that involves Wayne, Macomb, and Livingston counties in addition to Oakland. What we're trying to do is we're working with the, re, re, uh, the regional counties because every county has to come up with a stormwater plan. And uh, if you do it on a regional basis, we're all collaborating. We're all working on the same level. We're not competing against each other because, again, these things cost money. So as long as we're all working under the same standards, we'll be much better off. And we're working with the state to develop those new standards regionally. They've always encouraged us in the past to do that, and we're working with them now. Yeah. Uh, if you had to put a price tag on what we would need to spend to make up for uh, the the sort of neglect, I think that we've uh, that we've I- I- imposed on our infrastructure, and get ready for the future. Um, what, what, what kind of number are we talking about? You know, it's it's been estimated in the past that it would take billions of dollars a year, probably a couple of billion dollars a year to, um, for at least a while to bring us back up to where we should be. The federal government back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, they kind of quit funding um, these kind of programs to, to support our infrastructure. So it's been much more state programs. Um, and the state programs tend to be more lending rather than grants. So um, it's it costs more and more for local communities to do that. And that's something that we have to you know, come to grips with. And we're talking about more than just that. The things like the lead remediation in our drinking water, uh, the PFAS issue that's coming up. Um, we're having uh, the EPA, uh, the DEQ estimates that between 15 and 20 of all, percent of all septic systems uh, in homes uh, across the state are failing. Mm. So all these things are going to have to be uh, addressed because this, this affects our, our surface waters, our, our, our drinking water. All these things are affected by that. We're going to have to address this. We need state and local governments to really combine and work together. And the EPA has always been a friend in this. They've supplied us with significant funding over the years. Local governments get a lot of funding for, for uh, environmental programs from the EPA. And it's, it's been extremely helpful with, uh, with projects to protect our water resources. Yeah. I, I wonder what you make about uh, what we were talking about in the first segment of the show today, which is – the, the the real different approach, uh, and that may be a generous description that uh, the Trump administration is taking toward the, the EPA. This idea of um, of cozying more to industry, cozying more to industry that uh, that that people it's, in the administration may have an interest in. How does that play out for you? Uh, oh, I, I see in it Oakland all the time, County? and I see it, to me it's it's called regulatory capture, where the the in regulated industries capture the regulatory agency, and that's what's happened now. Um, it's it's being run by a uh, by an oil executive. Um, this is these are these are the the industries themselves running the operations now, and that's that's extremely dangerous in my mind. 
Um, and the, the president is extremely uh, reckless with, with climate change. Um, it's, it's Republican dogma now that there's no such thing. So that's what they follow. Um, their own agencies, uh, they, they file an annual report now looking at, at the, uh, what the effects of climate change, and they're just ignoring that in the White House. Um, this is the scientific agencies of the government that we're looking at data. We're looking at science. We're not looking at lobbyists, and that's what they've turned to now. They've turned to lobbyism, uh, to lobbyists rather than the actual science. And our, his first year in office, I went to in, in Detroit here. I went to a, uh, a defending science uh, in, at Hart Plaza, a, a rally that brought – it looked like thousands of people. We understand the issues. Mm. Um, we're, we're being affected by them. We see that it's happening. We just can't live in denial. It's it's going to destroy us. Yeah, uh, and you are going to be talking about infrastructure and the need for infrastructure pretty soon here in uh, Oakland County, uh, the Hazel Park Library on July eighth and eleventh, and then you're going to be a guest of State Senator Rosemary Bayer on uh, July fifteenth at her Watertown Hall at the Bloomfield Township Library. Uh, it does seem like we're getting people at least to talk about all of these right things. the more people know the more people will understand and they'll still want to protect their waters and again we see it even in, in oakland county last year we had 28 beach closings on inland lakes so um algae uh bacteria buildups these are things that happen from um from over fertilization from runoff from storms and and we're coming to grips with that we're trying to educate the public around that so all these things are going to have an effect on our on our on our livelihoods, on our uh, economic success, because uh, we Oakland County has more lakes than any other county in Michigan, and yeah. we depend on them for our economy. Yeah. Um, if we have big problems with our lakes, we'll lose our property values. So it's it's something that we have to protect. You know, the, the triple bottom line is is extremely important. Uh, we have to protect uh, our business community, but we also have to protect the environment we all depend on, and we have to make sure that everybody has the same access to what they need. So the triple bottom line is something that I operate on. Um, and, and that's what we should be always looking at. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Jim Nash, Oakland County Water Resources Commissioner. I should also mention that you will be a guest panelist as part of our August 22nd book club event at the Ferndale Public Library. We are reading uh, What the Eyes Can't See by Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha. So we'll look forward to having you as part of that discussion as well. I'm looking forward to it. Yes, and thanks very much for being here today. Thanks for having me. All right, that's going to do it for us today. I will be back tomorrow, and I hope you will too. We're going to talk about Juneteenth, which is coming up next week with the Wright Museum's Neil Barclay. Plus, we'll have a conversation with Chris Collins, the president of the Detroit Jazz Festival, about that upcoming festival and a bunch of other things that they are involved with. Uh, Detroit Today is produced by Jake Neer and Anna Marie Seisling. Our program director is Joan Isabella. The technical director and engineer is Matthew Terethan. And Detroit Today's theme song was composed by WDET's Sam Bobian. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow. <laughs>